0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses
0: are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before any of us step on stage or in front of a camera, a writer has painstakingly crafted a story with unique characters and interesting situations. With me today is Jason O'Dell Williams, a playwright and TV producer who started out as an actor, but soon realized he wanted more than just acting gigs.
1: That's as good as it's going to get for me. And that's all it's going to be It's just a bunch of those gigs. And if I'm lucky, I'll get like four or five of those a year. And I was like, that's not enough for me creatively. It just wasn't enough.
0: Hello and welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, featuring stories and conversations with fellow creatives about the realities of life in the performing arts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones. Please go to com and take this season's podcast survey to give feedback and input on this podcast. Back in 2013, I took a day off from the Avida National Tour To fly back to New York for a callback audition of a new off-Broadway play called Handle with Care, written by Jason O'Dell Williams. In comparison with the first audition, which went very well, and I felt really uh, connected not only with the character in the play, but also with the creative team behind the table, this callback felt rushed and disjointed, and I was not as connected to the piece. Ultimately, I didn't book the show, but a few years later, I was cast in another play by Jason called Church and State, which centers around a U.S. Senator running for re-election and his reckoning with gun violence, school shootings, and his own faith it was in that production, I really got to know Jason and his wife, Charlotte Cohn. Now, she's an actress and producer you'll remember from earlier this year during the Women's History Month episodes. And in that month, I also spoke with Tiffany Coyne, who is the wife of another former guest, Chris Coyne. (laughs) So Jason and Charlotte are actually the second married couple that I featured here on the podcast. But in separate episodes.
1: This is so fun, by the way. Thank you for having me. This is cool.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, whenever I, I asked Charlotte, I was even thinking of you. But when it comes to, like, couples that are uh, in the arts, I, I like to do one first and then hopefully get to the other. So it's
1: good. And we've done a few where we're doing it together at the same time, and it's very fun. But also, I feel like we never get anywhere because she and I just, like... <laughs> talk, talk over each other and, and inside jokes and talk in code. And we're like, did anybody understand that? Like, like do no. you know what we're talking about? Or just do it one at a time.
0: <laughs> so Jason and I get the show all to ourselves today. And this is like a, a masterclass in writing, not just the creative aspect, but the business side as well. And when it comes to that, nothing has affected this business like the COVID pandemic. I mean, the the lockdowns and quarantines and shuttering of theaters has has been quite an adjustment and a reality check for us actors. But writers have it easier, don't they? I, I mean, unlike actors, they can still just do their work. They they've got all this time now, and they can do what they do best: just sit in the home and write all they want, no distractions, right?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny, you know, we live in New York, uh, and I have a lot of friends and family that don't live in New York and I'm getting lots of texts and calls. How are you guys doing up there? It looks crazy on the news. And it, it, it's hard. Um, I also feel lucky though, that I have Charlotte, my wife and our daughter, Imogen and the dog, like I know some friends who are alone. Um, and I think that must be really hard. So we have each other and I think we all, we go in waves of like, this is fun. How cool is this? And being productive and then being like really depressed. And like, I just want to sit around and do nothing and watch BoJack Horseman all day, you know? So, (laughs) um, that's, it's a, it's a mixed bag. And, and it was really hard for me. Um, right at the, right off the bat, uh, they let us work from home for about a week and a half. No, it was like 10 days. And then they let us, let me go. They let a few of us go from my sort of day job and TV producing. And I hadn't been without a job in eight years. I mean, i were been working full time for eight years in TV production mm. uh, and playwriting on the side. But I was like, it's the first time to b- I've been like unemployed for more than two weeks, three weeks at a stretch. And I was like, Oh, this could be a long time. Nobody knew how long it was going to be at that point. Uh, but I was like, Oh, this could be long. And so I was like depressed for a couple of days. And I'd never really felt that feeling. <laughs> Charlotte was like, I think you're just depressed. And I was like, no, that's not me. I don't know what that is. Hmm. Um, and then as a writer too, it's, 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 it, it's weird. You know, that saying where they say, if you want something done, ask a busy person. So it's like, when I was busy all the time, I'm, I'm take, I would go to work and I would write on the train. I had to take the Metro North for a while. And it's like 45 minutes sort of, of nothing else to do. And I would, I would do 45 minutes in the morning and then the evening. And so you're talking like six hours of writing every week on a play. And I would get so much stuff done. And then I thought, Oh, being at home, I'll get so much done. And you just You don't for some, whatever reason, like it's really hard to motivate, right? I feel lazy. I feel unmotivated. Somehow not having that thing to go do every day just, just took the wind out of me. So I would just say it's been up and down. It's been up and down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That Finding that self-motivation. I Even before yeah. coronavirus, I, I found it hard to stay focused at home. I, I could get stuff done, but it would be like, I, I'd be five minutes on this and then a message would come and I'd address that. And then that would remind me, oh, that's right. I wanted to go do this. And then like an hour later, I'm like, oh, right, I need to go back to what I was doing. And so it's so easy to just get distracted. And and then then I'm hungry, so then I go get a snack. So it's just, there's constantly something, whereas I feel like when I've been able to get out, and, and sometimes I would just go to, like, a, a hotel that had, like, a, a computer room yeah. or lab, you know, and just a, a, a reading room, something to just kind of be alone around and the quiet.
1: People, oh, right, but it's just right. so, so sort you're of st- around, yeah, the right. world. Right, so you're still, yeah.
0: in, like, out in the world, yeah. but at the same time, you're able to kind of focus, put in the headphones, and and be somewhere where you're not as distracted.
1: Yeah, and I feel like, too, I used to, uh, there's something about, too, like, about changing locations to change your kind of creative spark mm-hmm. so like I can write for an hour at home in the morning and then get on the train and write for an hour on the train and then I'm at work and I do that and I come home and so sort of like each and then also all that walking time that you do that's the thing I you forget in New York think about all the time don't you walk a ton mm-hmm. to, to and from trains and and it's and you're like oh you're not doing that as much anymore and all that walking time was really creative for me. Sometimes you're not thinking about anything, but once in a while you'll be like, "Oh, that that project that I'm thinking about. What if this is the solution?" And thinking about scenes and dialogues and characters, a ton of that work happens just walking around. And then when then you have no reason, you have no reason to go out anymore. You're sort of like, "Oh yeah, how am I going to stimulate that creative thing anymore?" So it's been it's been weird. It's been adjust an adjustment. Yeah, it's hard.
0: Does it feel like there's a coronavirus play within you?
1: <laughs> well, so it's it's funny and. Uh, I think you mentioned this in your podcast yesterday too, or I listened to it yesterday. I don't know when it came out, but about sort of being lazy and, and letting yourself be lazy, but then also doing things just to spark the juices. So a, a friend of mine who, a director, Ralph Maranto in Rochester, who has shepherded the play church and state. And then this my newest play division street for me. Uh, he did the world premieres of both of those plays um, reached out to me and was like, let's make something. Why don't you write a monologue about the coronavirus or social distancing? Was that what it was? And I was like, what's, what about it? He was like, I don't know, just a monologue. I'll read it on Facebook and you write it. I was like, okay. And I was like, but I, I, this was like in the height of my, like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. It was probably three days after the stay at home order and I had just gotten let go. Hmm. And I was like, um, okay. And I just sort of forced myself to write something about it. And this like, three or four page monologue came out and he liked it and he was like, let's change this and change that. And da-da-da. And and then he did it. And I was like, Oh, that was cool. So I have a little short monologue coronavirus play. And then I found this thing uh, online. A few friends are members of it's called the 48. Oh no, the no pants theater company. And they did a 48 hour play festival. The writers write something really fast and the actors do it. I, I co-wrote one and, and then wrote one by myself and they all had to be, they didn't have to be coronavirus related, but a lot of them were just because it's what we're all going through right now. So I've done two of those short, very short things. And then there's a new play that I'm working on that was not going to be coronavirus related, but it was political. And I was, I was very early stages of it, maybe 15, 20 pages in. And I just thought this is going to obviously happen if it ever gets produced after this crisis, Mm -hmm. there's no way you can write a play now, I don't think, and not mention it. If you're talking about politics, I was like, I got to at least insert it. They got to mention it. It's not what the whole thing is about, but it feels almost unavoidable. It's like, you know, writing a play after 9-11, you got to talk about it at some point.
0: Right, right. There needs to be some mention that this is what's happened in the world. Yeah. Yeah, If if you're
1: talking about how we exist in, and it's supposed to be right before the 2020 election, voters are getting together, talking about their sort of policy views is the sort of the conceit of the play. And it's like, well, that's the huge major thing that just happened. You can't ignore that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So,
1: yeah. So the answer is yes, I have. <laughs> I think every writer out there is, you got to factor it into your writing, whether it's directly or indirectly. You know, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more post-apocalyptic, things coming out in the next three four years too
0: right yeah when we see these abnormal times then i think that spurs writers to to think i guess more deeply maybe philosophical about what life is and how we deal with things
1: And there might be the opposite thing too there might be a lot of that and then just like happy-go-lucky musical comedies Mm -hmm. (laughs) just to make people forget about everything so who knows
0: and there will certainly be a place for both of those kinds of shows when all this is over with. I mean, maybe you've been inspired to try your hand at writing these last several months like I have. Well, Jason does do script consultation, and you can find out more about that at resources.winmypodcast.com if you'd like to work with him. Now, whether it's a classic musical comedy or a new dramatic play, us actors will be itching to get back on stage. And and Jason definitely knows that feeling. He studied acting at the University of Virginia, as well as the famed Actors Studio here in New York City. So Jason took his acting seriously and was focused on making that his career. Kind of.
1: You know, there there wasn't really a master plan. Uh, I I think I did my I guess my idea was I was going to be an actor. I didn't know whether that was going to be stage or TV or movies. I I, I was a huge film and TV fan, still am. But I'd always only done theater. Right. That's that's what you have access to in high school and college. Um, And so then I went actually before I graduated Virginia, I went to New York for a week and L.A. for a week. And just kind of visited them. One was kind of a school trip and one I just went with some friends who had kind of preceded me uh, from Virginia. There were like three or four of them living out there. And I went and L.A. was gorgeous and beautiful. The sun was amazing. And I went to New York and it was like winter and cold and bitter and all that stuff. But I was like, I love New York. I couldn't I just didn't get L.A. I didn't understand how it worked. I didn't understand what they do all day. New York just felt like correct. It felt home. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, all right, that's where I'm going to go. So I, I, I graduated. In '96, actually graduated early. I taught at my old high school for a couple of months because I was like, "I want—is that something I want to do?" And it kind of wasn't. Um, I spent the summer at home, just kind of saving money and kind of gearing up. And then I moved in the fall of '96, and uh, there was no plan. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was just like, oh, "I'm just good. Hey, I'm here. I'm an actor." Um, and quickly, I sort of had all of this extra time on my hands. I didn't know what to do, so I just started writing. Then. And it was a bunch of really bad screenplays, really, really bad screenplays. Um, <laughs> what, were the,
0: what were the subjects of some of these screenplays?
1: Oh, it's, it's um, dudes in their 20s trying to make out and have sex. You know, like, that's all you write about because that's what, that's what you're living, you know? Like, yeah. you know, guys in college trying to have the cool final party weekend. and That was one of them. And one was like, you know, actors in New York trying to make it. It's like you're writing about what you know. Yeah. Um, And they're all sort of like riffs on things that we've seen, you know, swingers came out in 96 and I was like, Oh my God, that's the best movie ever. And so we're all trying to write like Favreau. But what I heard later on, as I got into the writing more, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're you're supposed to write a bunch of bad things, get them out of the way out of your system. And so I was doing that while I was still acting. And and then about a year and a half into it, a bunch of bad plays, you know, off, off Broadway Shakespeare. And I did Shakespeare in a, like a storefront um, and uh, just really bad showcases and stuff. I was like, maybe I need to go to grad school. So I applied to all the big grad schools uh, and got into the actor studio. And I liked it because they had acting, writing, and directing. And I was going to go as a writer and actor, but then they took away that double major, like the week before we all started. So I went as an actor, but I was exposed to the writing. And so I was always just kind of writing at the same time.
0: Was it more just out of out of boredom? I have extra time, or did you ever think, oh, well, maybe maybe I'll write this and it'll become something? But I'm going to focus on acting.
1: It was never, a, oh, this is going to become something. It was literally just, a, I have I have this creative energy and I didn't know where to put it. You know, when you're an actor in in school, you know, college and high school, which is all I knew at that point. Like you're going to class, and you've got all of this that's filling your day, and then you squeeze in these extra hours to do your rehearsal, and that's mm-hmm. kind of all you can handle. When you have all of this time on your hands, even if you're in a play, I was like, I still have maybe 20 hours a week that I'm like, I need to do something. And you can't just like do monologues in your living room. That's not enough. So I was just writing stuff. There was really no goal. I I don't know what I was. It was honestly for my own entertainment. Uh, Those first couple things I didn't show to anybody. There was never any, I didn't want to show it to anybody. But then I do remember um, right after grad school, I got cast on Guiding Light. Do you remember when Soaps used to film in New York? And it was the first time I'd ever had, like, they gave me a dressing room. Uh, so you kind of rehearse in the morning, you do your blocking, and then you, they just kind of say, go to your room and we'll call you. And it's like four or five hours. You're just sitting there. They gave me a whole script, right? All I had was like three or four pages that I needed. So I tore those out and I had like 70 pages. These scripts are dense because they, they double space them in a weird way. right? Yeah. And I just flipped it over and I started writing by hand in pencil, because that's all I had, an idea for a short film. And I, I, I think I must've wrote almost the whole thing right there that day. And I know I was there for three days. So I, probably, I wrote the thing over three days and it was the first thing that I made. It was a short film called the Danish play, which was about a bunch of actors trying to put on Hamlet, <laughs> but it was like, it was very much like waiting for Guffman. It was, it was half, half scripted, half improvised. Um, we shot the whole thing. I, it was less than, I think $5,000 for everything. We shot it in three days Charlotte was in it, a bunch of friends from school. Um, And so that was the first, and I directed it too. And I realized I'm not a director, but I really loved the writing of it. And that was in 2003. And then I remember doing a regional gig in DC. It was Fat Pig by Neil LaButte, pretty new play. At the Studio Theater, a great theater in DC. Paul Mullins was our director. If anybody listening has ever worked with Paul Mullins, they know he's maybe one of the best directors you can ever work with. We had a, a killer cast, awesome play sold out, extended run. It was like everything you could dream of, right? It was the best experience I've ever had as in a regional theater, probably ever was. And I was like, this was awesome. And then it ended and I thought to myself, that's as good as it's gonna get for me. And that's all it's gonna be, is just a bunch of those gigs. And if I'm lucky, I'll get like four or five of those a year. And I was like, that's not enough for me creatively. It just wasn't, hmm. I was like, I I got a lot out of it, but I was like, it wasn't, <laughs> I don't know, just something about it was like, oh, if that's the pinnacle, then I don't think this is what I want to do. And I was like, and then I could maybe like, what if I got to do that on Broadway or off Broadway? I was like, is that really enough? And I think I just realized I was like, oh, I don't, I don't think I love the acting part of it. I loved the text analysis. I loved thinking about the words and figuring out how to make those words say maybe exactly what the author intended or maybe something slightly different, but I'm still saying those words. Try something different on a different night, even still saying those same words, always trying to be word perfect. That was a huge, I was a huge stickler for that all the time. Even when other actors were like, oh, I'm getting close to the words. I was like, no man, just because this is contemporary, like you need to say everything he wrote. And like real stickler for punctuation because that's how I learned it in Shakespeare. And and I was like, I think I like the writing part. And so it was, that was the moment, that was 2006 when I did that play. And I always say it was sort of like, the acting went sort of on a downward curve and the writing started going up.
0: For many people in theater, this profession is as much a calling as it is making a living. And one of those who made quite a living from his writing was the Tony Award and Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, Arthur Miller. Creator of such masterpieces as *Death of a Salesman* and *The Crucible*, he gave an interview with Charlie Rose back in 1992 and explained why he became a writer.
2: Well, it's an affliction that uh, I often think you're born with. I never thought about becoming a playwright or not becoming one. It just seemed to be the natural.
0: It shows you.
2: Yeah, I think a playwright is partly an actor, frankly. I didn't, I didn't used to think that, but I think so now. And you are uh, projecting your acting skills on other characters. The difference with a, with a novelist is usually the novelist is not an actor, so he doesn't hear language, Whereas a playwright hears
0: language. The playwriting is an auditory skill rather than a literary one. For Jason, it was a similar drive and passion within him to write and create stories.
1: I am more happy writing. Like I really, really, really enjoy doing that. Like in those, so those early days when I was just writing for no one, I was having a blast. And I was like, it it doesn't matter if nobody sees it. Like, this is fun. I'm enjoying my time. I feel like I'm being creative and I'm getting better at something that might come in handy later. Um, And so it was also a little bit out of frustration too. And so writing that first play was also, I turned to my wife, Charlotte, and I just said, "I, I don't like being, at the mercy of casting directors and, 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 and also what plays are they doing? You know, they, you know, you could really know a, a theater or a director really well, but they're going to pick a season. There's like nothing in it for you. It's not, you know, so then what are you going to do? Um, and I was like, I would rather control my own destiny. And so I said to Charlotte, I was like, I, I, we know enough people. If I just write something, we can gather them in our living room. And we can just do it and we'll figure out a way to do it. And I said, what kind of play do you want? And that's when she said, oh, I want something where I can't be understood and something with language and communication or whatever. And that's where Handle With Care came. It's about an Israeli woman who's kind of lost in Virginia and she doesn't speak much English. And, and it was kind of out of that frustration of I want to control my own destiny. I want to write something for you. And combining those two things, that's what came out. Um, and then sort of slowly over time, it just the interest just took over.
0: And have you found that the writing has g- given you more control?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Because, um, you know, even just now, like with the coronavirus, like, uh, I mean, it, it, it sucks. All of these actors are out of work and they can't do anything. Production is shut down TV and film or whatever. I can continue to write. It's hard to motivate like we talked about earlier, but, um, I can continue to do that. And even if it's a, a false sense of control, it still feels like I'm in control. Yeah. Um, and so it, it just, I don't know. It makes you feel uh, better somehow. I don't know. I, I just, I, I it was just a long circuitous route to find where I needed to be. I, I think all along, this is what I liked most about theater was the, the writing of it was the words. Um, and so, yeah, the control helps. Cause I'm probably am, I, I know I am a bit of a control freak Um
0: so, I think in some way, all of us I, actors are in our own way,
1: right? I think you kind of have to be a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and also I'll say this too, uh, as a, as an actor, you know what it's like if you got into a play and you get a laugh, it feels great. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, think about church and state, which you were in, right. You're, you're only getting at best 25% of the laughs, right. Cause you're only one of four characters, as the writer, I get 100% of the laughs. laughs. So if anybody laughs, it's, I get to claim ownership like, of it. That's right? mine.
0: That's me. That's Even me. if it's,
1: even if it's a bit the actor came up with, even if it's a bit the director came up with, I was like, it's mine. That's mine. Right. Look <laughs> at all of it. Um, so mm. it, it's, it is like that proud Papa feeling too. It's like, you know, I, when we have a daughter Imogen and I remember when she was little, if she ever did anything funny or did anything that make you proud, it's like that feeling of pride is like we're watching something on stage that you wrote mm-hmm. as opposed to when you're an actor. You, I just, as an actor, I, I, I feel like it's hard to really enjoy it as much too. Cause you're so in it right in the middle of it. It's hard to be like, Oh, this was great. This was, this is all going so well, because if you're in it, you're not supposed to kind of think those things. So I don't know, there was something about it too, that was just more rewarding and more fulfilling. And, and I just felt like that, that was where I belong. I mean, I, I, people ask like, do you miss acting or whatever? And I'll I'll step in and read a part here or there uh, uh for a stage reading of something if they need someone um I don't mind doing that but I I don't think I would like to do the whole uh 3 weeks of rehearsal put up a play and do a long run um I I don't know why I just feel like I lost that <laughs> I I also never loved rehearsal Charlotte my wife loves rehearsal mm. I I was always like um it felt like it was something to get through to get to the performances, um, so that's when I was like, oh, maybe I just don't really like the acting part. Um,
0: so, how has the rehearsal process changed for you now as a writer? Is it something you enjoy more? You're you're obviously more involved with it, if, especially if it's a new work that you're doing.
1: If it's a new play, I'm 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 there and I'm involved a lot. Sometimes, though, I'm with a regional play. Uh, you know, they did Church of State and Division Street up in Rochester, and. And I would be there like for an early rehearsal and then I'd leave cause I just can't be there that long. And they would, they would just take over and kind of do it and they'd call me or email me with questions. I actually kind of prefer that rehearsal process. Um, I think maybe I am just not good in rehearsal rooms. Maybe that's the, that's what we're learning here. Hmm. Um, I it's, it is, it's a very, I don't know, weirdly frustrating for me when it's not going perfectly. Uh, actors are still finding their lines and finding their this and their that. Um, and I'm like I, I prefer I'm like you know what you and the director figure all that stuff out and once you've kind of feel like you've got an understanding on the scene then I'll come watch it and if something's not working because it's the writing then I can help you fix it I'm, I'm totally open to that but what's hard is to watch people try and figure it out uh, <laughs> and and I'm not allowed to speak obviously I shouldn't speak I, I that was the thing I had to learn also I, I would speak up too much in rehearsal Um and it's, I, it's also, I, I learned, it's hard for an actor to have the play right there in the room. Normally they're not. Normally right. you can be like, I don't know, why does he say this? I don't like this line or whatever. You can say all that stuff. Um, and then it's also hard because it is, if, especially if it is a new play, people feel like they can just change it because, um, oh, well, this isn't ready yet. Let's just fix it. And sometimes those are good changes and sometimes they, they aren't. And so it's hard for me to learn how to, say yes and say no, um, to know that someone can give me five notes and I can just say yes to one of them. Um, that's been, a, I, I think it's something I'm still struggling with, um, is to learn how to take feedback and, um, not get paralyzed by it, not feel like you have to please everyone and, and stay true to yourself. Those are the, those are the three things that are, that are hard to do, right? Someone can give you a note and Bradley Whitford said this and I, I steal it. I don't know if we can swear on this podcast, but go for it. um, He says, there's three stages to anytime you get a note. And it's true as an actor, as a writer, anybody gives you a note, your first reaction is fuck you. Your next reaction is I suck. I'm the worst artist ever. And the third reaction is, okay, I'm listening. How can we fix it? So whenever I would get a note, I would always be like, you're wrong. You're an idiot. You don't get it. And the second reaction, you'd go home and be like, oh my God, they're right. I got to tear up this play. It's, so, uh, it's the worst play ever. It's never going to work. And then the third reaction is, oh, no wait! Okay, I get it. If I just fix this one little thing, that'll fix this. And then it'll all come together. Yeah. So it's learning how to just um, silence those first two reactions and not say anything out loud, <laughs> even though you're going through them, and then get to the third one. Um, yeah,
0: because I've been a part of a couple of your table reads, you know, those initial steps and in getting yeah. a play read out loud. and. You asked for our questions and comments after that table read. And so I was wondering, how do you know which of those questions, which of those comments to take, which to ignore? How does that process work for
1: you? It's still an evolving process. But what I've learned is that um, let everyone speak and listen to everything. And you might hear a common thread here or there. Um, You know, if everyone's saying like, oh, I really love this character. I really love this. I really love that. You're like, all right, cool, that's working. People are like, I didn't understand why he picked up the bottle at this point. You'd be like, oh, well, because you can explain it. And they'd be like, yeah, this wasn't clear. So if you're getting a consistent note over and over again, that's something to look at. But then I want to hear everyone's feedback, but also because I heard the play at the same time that you all did. And I know what I'm thinking. And I know what I think works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of want to get either confirmation or... Or if people say, no, 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 that is good. No, it's totally working. We just kind of, we'll figure it out. Um, Just want to kind of hear what everyone's thinking and then kind of take it all in. And then you have to go away. And and that's the hard part is is to listen and not react and go away. And I'm also very like, I want to fix it right away kind of person. And I had to learn to be like, just don't do it today. Give it at least 24 hours. And just that sort of one sleep cycle will really help you be like, oh, okay, now you see things clearly. There's also a great thing that I learned in TV production. Um, I, I worked on a show called Brain Child and uh, Brain Games with uh, two friends of mine. I didn't know them. Now they're friends of mine. Jerry Culver and Adam Davis, and Adam is a screenwriter as well. He wrote Just Friends with Ryan Reynolds. Do you remember that movie? mm mm-hmm. um, and and then we got into TV production. He'd be like, here's the thing. When you get notes from the network or a studio, their notes are always wrong. If they say, um, I, this guy's speech is bad and, and you, it should be this instead, that note is wrong. But what they're talking about is a thing you need to look at. If they, if they say there's something wrong at the top of act two, you need to change the top of act two to this, this, and this. You're like, no, your, your solution is wrong but you're right that I need to look at the top of Act too, because something isn't clear to them. Right. And so then, and so that's what he said. He was like, just here, they gave you these notes about all this stuff and just look at those sections again and see if you can make them either funnier, sharper, more clear, or whatever. It's like, you don't want to just take their notes blindly and do them either. So taking in all that feedback from you guys, it's, it's all, it's all relevant. It all just sort of goes into the, the hopper as you, try and fix and make the play. And really, ultimately, the only way to make a play good is to, is to see it in front of an audience multiple, multiple times.
0: I mean, the producer, the director, us actors, we can all have our thoughts, but the audience is going to be the, the final say as to whether it works or not.
1: You know, The audience is always right. I mean, individual audience members aren't always right, but as a collective whole, you know, if you do 25 previews or whatever, as a collective whole, they are correct. What they mm-hmm. laughed at and didn't laugh at and didn't get, like, that's right. Um, some audiences are better than others we say or whatever, but I think as a collective whole, and that's the only way you learn. And honestly, for for church and state, I keep talking about it, but you know, we saw, I saw almost every performance. So I saw about a hundred performances and you go, okay, I see, I get it. I get what works. I get what doesn't work. And so then when I went and like had to then publish the play after that, I made changes to it, you Mm -hmm. know, very small, minor things, but, um, that's really the the only way to do it is to do it in front of an audience a bunch of times. And that's why it takes so long for a play to, um, to be ready is you've got to do, that's why you do those out-of-town runs and second out-of-town runs and then bring it to New York and then have previews and then changes, you know.
0: So did you ever see your time as an actor when you were pursuing it those years? Did that inform your style of writing or how you write for other actors?
1: I think absolutely. Um, I think if I can say sort of, One thing that I think I'm good at as a writer, it's dialogue. Um, I think the things I'm weakest at are are probably structure. That's the thing that takes the longest for me to figure out. Um, But I've always had an ear sort of for how people talk and accents and dialects and imitating people. So once I kind of figure out who a character is, right, like Sarah Whitmore, um, I'm just kind of hearing a bunch of my friends' moms talking. And I can just imitate her in my head and talk like her and know that how she says something is different than Alex or Charlie or Tom. Right. So it's like as an actor, I also think I know what is going to be fun to say. (laughs) Um, And so I always try and write it. So if I was playing that part, I would like to say this line Um, because Mm -hmm. I do, you know, I'll sit here and I'm writing and you'll write something and then you'll go back and you'll reread it. And I'll just like lightly sort of, mouth the words to myself as i go i'm playing all the parts and i'm like does that sound good if i was the actor wouldn't i hate if i had to say those three words in a row how do i make that better so i i I definitely think my acting informed that because um i'm trying to write dialogue for people that they will love to say i want them to be like i love saying that line i love this monologue i love that exchange um all of the time i don't want Mm -hmm. anything to be wasted uh Literally, I don't want an extra word in there. Um, <laughs> Rob Nagel, who you know, who played Senator Whitmore, uh, he he is a great collaborator, and he would come to me and be like, "Do we need the van in there? Can we get rid of it? Can we can we can we do it without the van?" And I'd be like, "All right, let's try it both ways." And we literally talk about a line with or without a single word, huh. and he would be like, "No, no, you're right. We need it. We need it." Or the vice versa, I'd be like, "No, no, it's better without it." Um, and so like, little things like that—that's what I want from actors too, like oh, I'm just, I'm I'm stumbling over this one word. Is there a better way, you know, uh, to say it? So I think my acting, being an actor, definitely helped my writing in terms of, I know what it's like to have to say something out loud. I don't know if you've had this experience, you've ever read a new play and it just, it reads well, but then if you start to say the words out loud, it's like, ugh. This is right. so hard to say.
0: Because there's a difference between like book writing and, yeah. you know, wh- wh- where you're, where you're just all uh, imagining, Cerebral, you're yeah. just imagining everything. Whereas opposed to actually saying it and conversing, then it's like, Oh, that doesn't sound right or
1: feel right. So you got to say it out loud. You got to hear other people say it out loud. Um, so yeah, that definitely my acting informed it too. And also like, you know, as an actor, the best, ah oh God, the best feeling for me is getting a laugh. And so I always, whenever I can, try and punctuate something with a joke. Um, mm-hmm. Even when they're talking about something really serious, I just always hear that that opposing conversation in my head. So if you're saying something really, really sharp and biting, I'm, I'm always like, what's the comeback? What's the thing to, to respond to that? So I think that's fun for actors.
0: It's a way to just kind of cut that tension. You know, something, yeah. So I'm, I know that that's something I always look for. So it's it's good that, you know, writers like you are trying to
1: infuse that. Because I think if you're all one sort of emotion or one sort of tone for too long, people get bored. So that's also me just getting bored.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you were bringing up the fact of, of writing for actors and how they speak and a lines that they want to say. And it made me think of all the commercial auditions I've gone to and how those writers seem to have no idea how humans talk. <laughs> I did, in, in fact, I, I just did. You know, even in this day, we're doing self tapes, and I did yeah. one for WebMD, and it was just. I and and I was supposed to play this plumber of a father who's talking about <laughs> their 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 diabetic child, and just the lines. I'm like. Okay, if I was like a maybe a PhD, I would speak like this. But a plumber isn't going to say these. Th- it just it made no sense. And so right. it's interesting and I noticed that pr- probably more in commercial writing than any other type well, of pro- performing pro- I've done.
1: Probably those writers are not they're not like performer writers, right? Not they're like all. they're 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 marketers. They so they know how to market something and they can write a good brief and something like that, but they're not writing dialogue. And they're like, "Oh, you can write you're a writer, you just write it." And so they write it like a what it would sound like as you're describing something on the back of a pill bottle, and you're like, no, I, I'm a human being. Yeah, but also they have to write those things. It's so dumb. It's they spend so much money on production. Like, it feels like they leave that stuff to the last minute and they just write it really fast. That's the other thing.
0: And as Jason mentioned earlier, his job for the last eight years or so, apart from the playwriting, has been working in television as a writer and producer. Now, going from stage work to TV and film doesn't seem like much of a stretch, right? And while that's true to a certain extent, we'll get into how challenging that can be. But Jason's work on television came most notably for the TV shows Brain Games and Brain Child. Both involve kind of documentary educational material where the viewing audience can interact and take part in the tests they see on screen. So how did a writer of stage plays transition into neuroscience and hidden camera experiments?
1: That was, it was, that's a funny transition too. And, and, and that was part of my like uh, leaving acting for writing full time. Uh, I'd actually gotten cast in a a New Jersey Shakespeare play. um, And I was going to do that. I was still acting. This was in 2012, 2011 into 12. And then this friend of mine, Jerry Colbert, I just sort of needed a, a a more steady gig. And Charlotte was like, Jerry, Jerry worked in TV. She's like, can you help Jason find a job or whatever? And he's like, you know what? I might have something in a couple months, You know, have, reach out to me then. And then he introduced me to another friend of his who was working on a true crime show. Why would I know anything about true crime? And he was just like, I met the guy, Eric, he was really cool. He was like, yeah, man, we need producers. It's a brand new show. Do you want to come do it? And I was like, okay, sure. And then like the next day, I said to my friend, I was like, Jerry, I I don't know what the hell I'm doing. There's no way I can do this. He was like, listen, if you can write plays, you can write for TV. And I was like, why do you think that? He was like, it's just story. It's just structure. And you know how to have a beginning, middle and end. And also it required a lot of uh, VO, voiceover writing, Mm -hmm. which is just explaining things as clearly and concisely as possible. And that was what I really excelled at because it's also in a person's voice. It has to sound natural, conversational. and so for, for that show Homicide Hunter and then Brain Games, which is right after that, it's a lot of VO and it's a lot of person talking to an audience, like a monologue essentially. And it, you gotta make it relatable and conversational and not sound like those commercial copy you were reading. Right. So it was super helpful to have somebody who's good with dialogue because voiceover is essentially a little bit more formalized dialogue. I mean, I learned a lot. There's a huge learning curve, but when it got to the nitty-gritty of the writing that stuff, I I, I was Fine, I was better than some other people that were had been doing it for years. The, in terms of the taking neuroscience and things that I know nothing about, that was hard, but I would just have to take longer on my own. I would take two hours to read like several articles about a subject right. and try and kind of understand it. And then I would write a page about it, explaining it in one whole page. And then I would cut it down and cut it down and cut it down and cut it down until it was three sentences or less. And then I was like, that's what we go with. And so it's just, that was just how I had to do it. And I was like, and I, and I'm, it's great because I don't know anything about it. I'm an idiot when it comes to brain science. So I was like, if I can explain it to myself, if I'm understanding it, then like a regular person or a kid can understand it. So it's actually kind of good yeah. that I wasn't super smart because otherwise, you know, those people that explain things with bigger words than you asked for. Um, I remember I used to always ask my dad, like, what does this word mean? And he would, he would use a bigger word to define the word I asked for. And I was like, well, that doesn't help me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, break it down in small bite-sized words. So that was, that was helpful actually. Um, you know, making the voiceover conversational and, and understandable.
0: Yeah. You no know, it's, it's interesting that you say that, cause it, it brought me back to my school days when I would have to do a book report. And this was, yeah. I, I remember there was one specific night. My, my, my mom, she was in the church choir. So she went off to, to go do that. And so I was home alone working on this book report. I'm like trying to like summarize, but also give insights or whatever I was trying to do. It, and I remember by the time my mom came home, I have seven pages of the book report and I'm only 50 pages into the book, <laughs> you know, because I, I was just like saying everything that didn't need to be said, you know. And so it's interesting to hear you talk about condensing. Saying two hours of reading into a page into a paragraph into three sentences
1: i still i still do that charlotte and i and and ralph this other director who i collaborate with sometimes we'll talk about a scene he'll be like well this isn't working this and that and i'll and, and we all the shorthand is now is, go overwrite it and then we'll read it all and then we'll uh figure out what we can get rid of so it's like you know write the monologue fat and then listen to it a couple of times. And, and then it's like just paper cuts, like take out this line, take out this word, take out this line. And then slowly over time, you're like, all right, now this is just the the like the like the, the condensed diamond of it. You know, you don't have all mm-hmm. the coal around it. You're like, you got the, just the heart of it. Um, and that's, I think, I think that's a good way to write. I think, you know, write all of it and then cut out what you don't need. That way, um, it also helps you as a writer too. You're like, um, you're explaining things to yourself as you get the characters talking or whatever and then you can take out what's repetitive or unnecessary writing is rewriting i mean that's like the thing you learn eventually uh writing a first draft is hard but rewriting it is 10 times harder um and so it's, it's the the, the a, as good as a play or whatever piece of writing is it's only as as good as or as much time as you spent rewriting it
0: and so when it comes to your own writing are is there that one or two plays that you've been rewriting and rewriting and it just hasn't worked out yet do you have some of those in your trunk
1: <laughs> oh there's tons of plays that i've started that i just go nowhere but i save them and i always think maybe i'll come back to them and i've i've done that you revisit things there's plays that um i keep i keep uh, you know division street we kept playing with the ending i think we finally cracked the ending um uh, the whole shebang is one that we were supposed to do this year supposed to do a a reading of it in may and then another reading in june and then a production in the fall it might be pushed to the spring uh but that's a play that man where it started in 2018 like it looks almost nothing like the play that that we have now that was a play that i kind of wrote it was very different than other plays i kind of wrote it like i know kind of what i want to say so i'm just going to say a lot of stuff and then it's like, okay, only one of those things worked out of those 90 pages. <laughs> so you're like, all right, let's stick with that. That one was a lot of rewriting, a lot of rewriting. But I think it finally got somewhere. Uh, I like to write lots of things at the same time because you can you can set it aside and then go to the next one. Um, so that's helpful because uh, I feel like you do bang your head against a wall after a certain point and you creatively, it's helpful to kind of, well, let me try this. let me Let me go to this one. It's a whole new set of problems. And then... In the back of your brain, maybe you're solving the other problems. Uh, Twice we've been hired to adapt a work into a screenplay, a play. One was a book that I wrote, a novel, into a screenplay, and one was a play, Church and State, into a screenplay. And that was hard for me. Uh, I actually did it with Charlotte. It was helpful to have somebody to kind of bounce off of um, because it had to happen really fast. And it took three or four drafts and we finally felt like we cracked it. And then the producers were sort of like, cool, we'll take it from here. And then they rewrote it from page one.
0: <laughs> and it's nice. like,
1: you hear those stories happening and it was like, "Why? why did you, why did you want this play in the first place? We're just going to rewrite it. Like, I don't It just does baffles my mind boggles my mind. That was a really hard lesson. That's a, that, that was probably the hardest writing thing that I've gone through. And I'm sure lots of writers more experienced than I have done it many more times, but so
0: when, when a piece of yours is optioned like that, say church and state for a screenplay, do you hand over the rights for them to kind of reword it or rework it in the way that they need to? Or how do, are you involved in that process?
1: So normally, normally someone just options it and they just, they'll just take it. They pay you a small amount of money and then you're like, great, see ya. Um, and you're not involved at all. But with this one, they thought, well, we want you to write it because you're such a good writer. We want you to to do it. And they didn't have to do that, but they gave us the first crack at it. And then eventually they just did what they wanted to do with it. And that was the frustrating part. Um, I've had other people option plays and they don't want us to be a part of it. They optioned it and then nothing happened. And I was like, that's cool. I just got a bunch of money for nothing anyway. um, Nothing, you know, maybe a little bit of my time wasted in conversations with them. But... um, Yeah. So when you option a script, you're basically giving up all your rights. I mean, you can have a a more strict or stringent contract that kind of gives you like more sort of oversight over the final product. But most producers aren't going to give that to you. But um, yeah, some people really want to be involved and some don't. The more playwrights I've heard about it, I heard Tracy Letts talking about it, right, who is, I mean, maybe one of the best playwrights in the last 10, 20 years. And, and he talks about August Osage County. And he was like, yeah, that, that movie just didn't turn out good. And he was just like straight up with it. He was like, it's a great play. I'm really proud of that play. He's like, the movie wasn't good. It's a bad script. And he's like, it's mostly my fault. He, he helped adapt it. In
0: a 2014 interview with Tribute, Tracy Letts talks about the difficulty of bringing August Osage County to the big screen. It's not natural, necessarily, to take something that's written for the stage and make it work
1: on film. It's, in fact, historically been kind of difficult to do that. I would be hard-pressed to think of a play that became a movie that was better as the movie. I, I just really, I don't think I can think of an example. Maybe a movie musical, like maybe Chicago was kind of great, but I still think the stage version was amazing. Cabaret was a great movie musical, but I prefer the stage version, so... Uh, I can't think of a straight play, though, that was better as a movie.
0: In Rolling Stone magazine, Tracy Letts says that giving up control of the piece is one of the hardest parts. As he puts it, quote, ultimately the director on the film is the final arbiter. In theater, the playwright is the final arbiter, and he or she will be the one making the final decision. But on a movie set, it's a director. And the screenwriter is not number two or even number five. For most playwrights, that's an uncomfortable position to take, to suddenly say, oh, I guess I'm not in charge anymore. For the Dramatists Guild Foundation, Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Lynn Nottage interviewed another Pulitzer playwright, Charles Fuller. And the two of them talk about the challenges of transitioning from stage to screen.
2: Playwright is like a man riding a motorcycle. Uh, movie writer is like a guy riding in a bus. And in the bus, there are other passengers. And so you have, to, you have to say, excuse me, I want to get to the door. Or excuse me, i like to get out on the, in the front of the bus. Well, there are all kinds of people talking and telling you things while you're working on a film. Uh, it can be debilitating. Mm. I know my experience, which is not as vast and and deep as yours in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. but I always feel when I'm out there and I'm writing a script for these producers that like I'm a hooker walking the strip and the pimp is like, bitch, where's my money? (laughs) (laughs) You know, Uh, I I always feel that in some ways that I'm asked to compromise a little bit of my Uh myself that I've never felt that it's been a pure experience where Uh I'm permitted to be. Who I am as a writer, uh-huh. and I'm wondering whether you had any of that experience. Uh, no, but but at the same time, um, I, I learned to keep the play out of the movie. It's thinking filmically, which is which is different from writing a, a play. Language isn't as important in a motion picture as the frame, the picture is. So, you have to think visually rather than thinking about words and how the words sound and all those things. And you must begin to see the movie outside of the play to remember that if it's about motion, which it's it's called a motion picture, so things have to move. And if you're not aware that they have to move, then you will make a mistake.
1: When you're on stage, also, like... Um we're looking at everything the whole stage all the time. You can't you can kind of control where you where I look, but you can't totally control where I look. So it's it's just a different thing. It's all coming at you at once. Um it's very uh theatrical in the best sense. Um and if you try and put that in a movie, it just feels more artificial in a way. So that's why maybe musicals are an easier leap because it's already one step removed from reality, right? It's a little less, arti- it's already artificial. Um, But I, I don't know if you remember, Doubt is just such a great example. I saw the play on Broadway, Cherry Jones and Brian F. Burn, and it was like hysterically funny too, really dark and tragic. And I cried, but also hysterically funny. And the movie is not funny at all. And same with Austin, August Osage County, which was like at three hours long. I think, I mean, I remember wanting them to stop being so funny because I had to pee. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> you're thankful for those two intermissions, but you couldn't wait to come back and and see how this goes. And I could have gone for a fourth act or a fifth act. Right. And the movie was just not funny. And I don't, I don't know like that. That's sort of the the, the magic, right? Was it the acting, the writing, the directing? I, I don't know. It feels like it's more the acting and the directing because the writing was almost the same, but then you just wonder, is it just because of the medium it was written for? It was, if it's intended for the stage, it's kind of, supposed to stay on the stage and so that was also a hard lesson and and that's what happened with the screenplay and they were like listen this is a great play it's not a movie so we got to make it a movie and then i was like but why are you changing all the words they're like (laughs) i don't know i was like okay maybe they're right so eventually you just have to kind of let it go
0: yeah have you wanted to or looked at certain musicals or maybe paired with uh composers to get a musical under your belt
1: i've I've always wanted to write a musical. Uh, I cannot write music. I don't even think I'm good at lyrics, Um, but there is one idea that Charlotte and I have had for a long time. And just over the last sort of six months to a year, we've written an outline. We have like a whole out, like a pretty detailed outline and characters and like a whole, it's like the step before you start writing. And I've written the first two scenes. Um, We talked to a composer uh, that person got a little busy. Um, we need to maybe figure out how to really nail somebody down, but it's also like, it's really easy for me because essentially all of the plays I write are on spec, right? No one's paying me ahead of time to write a play. I'm just writing it, hoping that somebody will take it later. And I've been lucky eventually somebody, you know, does, but with writing a musical, it takes so much more time. Um, um, that I don't know anybody that would like commit to writing it with us without getting paid first. So we're trying to figure out the sort of the, just sort of the logistics of that, of how do, how, do we need to raise money ahead of time and pay this person, pay ourselves, just sit down and do it. Um, and then also it's really, it's a lot easier as you know, like you've been a part of this, I'll have a play and I'll just bring, you know, five or six actors into our living room. We just do a reading. Right. And it, sometimes you guys just do it because you're awesome. Sometimes we give you like 20 bucks and, give you like donuts and stuff at the table and cost us very little to nothing. Uh, And I learn about the play and then I can take that and take three weeks to a month and rewrite it and do that again with a musical. That's an, that's an impossible thing to do sort of for free. You know, you got to pay musicians and you got to get people that can sing and your cast is bigger. So, so it's just a, it's something I've never, I I wouldn't, I wish I had known people and know how they create a musical from beginning to end um, to see kind of how they navigate all of that. Um, but so the short answer is yes, I want to write a musical and we're trying to figure out, uh, logistically how to get all of us in the room together. We'd love to take a chance on somebody young who's like never done anything. Cause I think they would, they would help. It would also be like, yeah, we'll just jump in. But, um, so it's, yeah, we're, we're trying to figure out how to do it. Um, I think it would be a really great and exciting musical. We love the story and the topic. It's based on something real that happened. But I would. I, I've always wanted to write something that's kind of based on historical fact, an actual event. Yeah.
0: This was a question whenever I had composer Georgia Stid on about her own writing process. Like, so how do you know when a piece is ready to produce? Like, like you, you've um, written it, you've rewritten it. How do you know? Okay, now it's ready.
1: Um, that's a good question. I, I don't. Uh, I don't know that you ever know that it's ready until you. Do it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think you write a first draft and you're like, I have no idea if this is close or not. And so you read it out loud and you're like, oh, this is really far off. I got a lot of work to do. Or you're like, oh, wait, this is pretty close. And so you rewrite it and rewrite it. And then, and then, I don't know, you just sort of feel like this is ready for somebody's eyeballs. Like this is ready for somebody else to read at least. And then they're the ones that tell you, like, like I, t- I wrote that play and, and I sent it to a couple people and they're like, no, no. And then one person's like, yeah, I want to do it. And I said to her too, I was like, "Uh, you know, this is pretty new. I've only had one reading of it. And then this is really like the second or third draft. And she was like, no, I know it's, it's in great shape. We'll definitely make some changes, but she was ready to just put it into production. Hmm. Um, And when we did Division Street, we knew like, all right, I think we're ready, but it's going to change. Church and State, the first one we did in LA, like that, that draft I gave them before rehearsal. We made a ton of changes during that rehearsal process. They did it. And then we made, I made a, a lot more changes before we went to Rochester and then even more before New York and then a bunch during the rehearsal process and then more after the show is over. So it's like, you got, you never, it's never ready until you do it. <laughs> uh, and and then you see it and you go, Oh yeah, that wasn't quite ready. Um, and then you fix it. I, I, but I, cause I'm also a big believer in, um, don't let the best be the enemy of the good, right? If you sit at home and try and make it perfect, make it perfect, make it perfect, you're just gonna be paralyzed with fear and never get it out there. So at some point you gotta just be like, all right, take it. I know it's not perfect, but let's hear it out loud. Take your lumps, you know, mm-hmm. see what works and what doesn't and, and, and know that you can fix it later. And knowing like not every performance is gonna be great and not every audience is gonna be great. And just sort of, you gotta take it in the aggregate and, and sort of see afterwards. Um, I think as I've done it more, the more writing I've done, you get a sense of like, well, this is at least ready for someone to read It's the beginning, middle and end and all the characters there. I would never give anybody something super half ass. Um, but uh, so what I usually do when I write something is I write it from beginning to end and then I go back. No one's seen it yet. And I read it from you know beginning to end and, and, and fix it. But I, I try not to fix as I go too much because that'll just stop you. You just won't get very far. So I really plow through a first draft and then I go back and clean it up. And then that's what I consider a first draft is basically when I've gone through it twice and then I'll give it to somebody like Charlotte to read, but also she doesn't like to read like, you know, on the computer or on, on paper, she'd rather hear it out loud. So then that's when we bring people in and we'll yeah. it, let's Let's hear it out loud. And that's a really fast and easy way, if you can get the actors together to, to hear what's working, that's the best way to do it. And then you've got these bodies in the room who, you know, sometimes will help give you feedback. That's really helpful is to get people talking and you hear it out loud. And then, you just, I, then I just, you know, rinse and repeat, just keep doing that until it's ready. Until you've until it's ready when you can't look at it anymore. (laughs) That's also true. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. When it's like, I've done all that I can do with this.
1: Every time I read it, I'm not changing anything anymore other than you just like nitpicking. So you're like, I got to just, someone's got to take it now. Yeah.
0: So it sounds like that while you were pursuing acting at first, that you found your home in writing. And it sounds like this is, this is where you're going to stay.
1: It it, it was a long sort of strange trip as they say, but Um, I sort of, I have no doubt that this is what I should be doing. It's what I like doing. And, and also honestly too, um, uh, you know, the, the title of your podcast is why I'll never make it. And it's so funny. I've been thinking about that lately, I guess, as we all have all this time to reflect. (laughs) And I heard, uh, somebody talking on a podcast, Darcy Carden, who's on the good place. And she said, it wasn't until she gave up on making it that she actually made it. Um, and I was like, oh, that's all I have to do, and then I'll make it. But I was like, no, I think you truly have to give up on making it. And and I and I kind of was thinking about that a lot lately. And I I I do believe if I never like you know make it become famous, become a household name, uh, I still love writing. Like I will still do it until I'm you know ninety five years old and can't do it anymore. Um, so I'm like, well, then that means that's what I should be doing. It's like if if you would do it for free and and no one's going to see it and ever read it or see what you're doing or making you know people that just paint at home because they love it nobody ever sees it like that's what you should be doing um so uh, that that's how I know that this is what I want to be doing acting for me just came with a lot of angst and um uh extra things that I didn't like about it not that there's no angst or you know difficulties in writing there's a ton but I think the good for me far outweighs the bad so uh, yeah this is definitely The path I like being on, I'm supposed to be on for sure.
0: And in the end, that's what every artist wants to find. Their home. The place where they not only feel the most fulfilled, but the place where they are doing the most good. And Jason and his wife Charlotte have found a lot of good in the play Church and State that they produced off-Broadway. And as I mentioned, you could get a signed copy of that play from Jason himself by joining the Win Me newsletter. One lucky listener will be chosen next month. So go to com and enter your email for a chance to get that signed copy. Well, a big thanks to Jason for coming on the podcast today, and especially to you for joining us. If you know someone else who could benefit from our conversation, please share this episode with them. And another way to support this podcast is by going to donate.winmepodcast.com and helping in the continued production of episodes like this one. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver Jones, reminding you that the reasons for not making it may seem countless and frustrating. But the reasons to keep going are even more numerous and rewarding.
1: CFOs and controllers, there's a better way to manage cards, expenses, travel, and reimbursements. You need a unified spend platform from Brex that lets you control all your spend in one place, automate compliance, and close the books faster. Get started at brex.com.